Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now, we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. This is The Movies That Made Me, with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. I'm I'm so excited. We're we're here with um, Josh Braun who is, uh, I was trying to figure out, I don't even know how to introduce you, Josh. It's, it's, I'll, I'll start with the fact that, especially lately, as we've been sort of locked up, my wife and I have been watching even more documentaries than usual. And it's become a running gag in uh, our home that um, uh, the first thing, if we're deciding whether or not to watch it, um, Nancy, my wife, will go, well, was Josh Braun involved with it in any way? <laughs> oh, that's pretty, and, pretty amazing. And there are even a couple, and you're going to have to help me fill in, although I'm, I'm only going to mention a few, but every now and then I'll look on IMDb and your name's not there, and we'll go, ah, but it might be good. I hear it's good. And then we watch it, and you get to the end, and there's your freaking credit in some other place. So, um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, but Josh has been involved with, I mean, as a producer, as a distributor, as a, as a I mean, you do all manner of uh, uh, things on these films. Um, but uh, here's just a few. This is an amazing Man on Wire, The Cove. Cave of Forgotten Dreams, Encounters at the End of the World, Winnebago Man, Spellbound, Supersize Me, Tell Me Who I Am, which we just watched on Netflix and is just devastating, incredibly powerful, wonderful doc. Apollo yeah, um, yeah. 11, Edge of Democracy, uh, the miniseries Evil Genius, um, Wild Wild Country, The Keepers, Finding Vivian Meyer. You were on Searching for Sugar Man. In some, I was like, what the hell, dear Zachary? Um, and, uh, uh, Josh also dabbles occasionally, um, in feature film production. Uh, and we met a million years ago, um, when, uh, I believe you're the guy who brought the graphic novel, a history of violence to new line. Is that correct? Yes, it is correct. Yeah. I optioned it and, uh, then brought it to new line and sold it and set it up there. And, and, uh, and here, here we are again, many years later, having a reunion. Yes. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm very glad you did that. <laughs> so am I. Yeah, that was a highlight. I mean, when we found out that Cronenberg was going to direct it, it was definitely one of those moments in one's life when you think this can't really be happening. But yeah, was. I can tell you exactly where I was. It's hilarious. I was, I was shooting some short, uh, well, not films, videos, um, with a friend uh, that that we've been working on, and we needed a tripod and someone had suggested, I was astonished by how expensive tripods were. And a friend of mine said, Oh, go to a pawn shop. And I literally was walking into the first pawn shop I've ever entered in my life when my phone <laughs> rang and it was, it was uh kale Boyder at new line going, Oh, by the way, David Cronenberg wants to direct your script. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. that yeah. is just one of those, <laughs> one of those moments. Um, it was incredible, but uh, did you get your yeah, tripod? I, I did, I did. I still have it up in the garage. It's uh, uh, it's a lovely thing. Yeah. Um, I can't figure out how to screw around on my iPhone though. So, oh, well, it was a great day nonetheless. Cronenberg and the tripod. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a win-win. Um, but anyway, it's just it's, uh, uh, and we bumped into each other a lot uh, on 
going to film festivals with, with a thing and, and sort of over the years um, kind of uh, uh, keep keep up. And I'm just, I'm always so happy to see your name on something because it's, I, I don't even, we, we don't talk to our guests about their work really. So we're not going to ask you many questions, but uh, is, is documentaries or are documentaries, is that a thing that you would always sort of set out wanting to do or did you just kind of fall into them? It was interesting. I would call it a little bit of an evolution because, you know, um, at a certain point I started, there was a couple of points in my life when I saw a documentary, one I may, I will talk about maybe later, but when I suddenly had this sort of epiphany that a documentary is not just something that you see on public television and that it can have other qualities like entertainment or be shocking or funny. And, you know, Mostly my reference points, you know, prior, you know, in my earlier life were, you know, documentaries that I saw at, you know, like midnight shows like Gimme Shelter or um, Monterey Pop or, or something like that. Um, but at the point that I saw, well, I'll just say it now, I saw a film at Sundance called Frat House in 1998. And it was actually kind of a, you know, an interesting um, reference point for now because it was never really officially released because there was footage that was later deemed to be recreated in some way. Mm -hmm. So it was withdrawn by HBO. I mean, obviously now documentaries are rife with recreations, but back then it was sort of a cardinal sin. But when I saw that, it was right when I had been talking to Ken Bowser about optioning the book uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls to do a documentary mm -hmm. based on the book. And it sort of hit me that, you know, documentaries don't have to just be medicinal and um, educational. They can also be a lot more. And so that was all happening in the late 90s. And that sort of led to my leaving my previous job and kind of jumping off a cliff and, you know, without any new job or anything, I just quit, you know, on January 1st, 2000 and said, I'm just going to see what the world brings, even though I don't have any. And then that led to a job at the, at the IFC channel, um, John Pearson, the sort of legendary producer's rep who also inspired me to become a producer's rep, um, hired me to produce his television show, Split Screen. And at that time, I really wanted to just produce. I didn't actually want to go back to selling. So it was a great gig. And I thought I get to be a producer, but I wanted to be working in doc. So I actually made a deal with him and I said, if we do that, I want to make a mini documentary in every episode of this season. And if you're on board with that, then I'll come in and produce the series for you. So that was like all in that period when it all started to become clear in my mind that my everything was heading into that field. Wow. And and um, were those the... God, sorry. I'll, I'll cut this if I'm wrong. Were those the mini docs that were on what was the cable channel yeah it was on ifc and the IFC. Yeah. yeah yeah we what we did was there was um a series there was a book that the series was based on where you know john would interview kind of certain luminaries and then we right. did a mini documentary connected to each of those filmmakers got it so you know we did one on the exorcist because we were interviewing um you know the, the famous casting agent who cast the exorcist right right um and, you know, each episode was sort of the, the documentary was connected to the person we were interviewing. Yeah, I, I remember those. Those were those were great. Wow. So you've been OK. Everything that's good. Um, <laughs> and then the only and then we'll, we'll get into your stuff. But the one thing is, even even when I'm like intimately familiar with our guests, I always like you check Wikipedia to see if there's going to be any surprise. And um, is this true? Or I know for a fact that every now and then my my niece goes in and adds weird things to my Wikipedia page. So maybe not, but <laughs> yeah. uh, you were in a punk band with Jim Jarmish. Yes, it's true. Actually. And that <laughs> is uh, it's a funny chapter, you know, in that those early days, I mean, I really only moved to New York to be a musician and to be in a punk band. That's all I was interested in. And when I got to New York, you know, when I was old enough to leave home, I basically got to New York and the scene had morphed from sort of, traditional punk rock into sort of no wave right. and that no wave scene is what I became part of. We had a band called Circus Mort with a singer named Mike Jura who went on to form the Swans and me and my twin brother, Dan joined the Dell Byzantines as twin drummers and Jim was the singer. And, and in fact, he left the group um, 
in terms of touring. Like we did a couple of tours and then we started recording our album. And then right in the middle of the recording of the album, we said, I can keep recording, but you know, I have to finish, you know, my film Stranger Than Paradise. And I can't really be out touring. And so that was the reason that he stopped playing live with the group, but he finished the album with us. And we stayed in touch and we're still friends. You know, he's one of those people that, you know, I've just stayed in touch with and always been incredibly fond of and a fan of his work too. That's hilarious. So twin drummers, actually twin drummers. I mean, there's a lot of bands with two drummers, but. Yeah, no, we were twins and drummers (laughs) and uh, we split the duties between a traditional trap kit and like a sort of array of percussion and we would switch it on each song. That's fantastic. I love it. Um, well, great. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming in. It's a real blast uh, to have you. I've, I've wanted to have you on for a while now. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, you, you sort of, we, we kicked around some ideas as to what you were going to talk about. Do you want to sort of lay out your. Yeah. Your well, I think, team here? I guess, uh, you know, it's, uh, I tried to make a list of some of my favorite films but it was hard to make that list so i started thinking you know what were the films that influenced me and sort of created a sensibility for me that sort of led me into different directions over my life and i guess if it's okay to just jump in yeah sure that's what we do here great that is what we do yeah i mean it sort of started really when i was when i was a kid you know i lived in new york at a time when in the late 60s early 70s when you know and i was only like six or seven and basically there was no like oh we have to make sure that our children get to school safely it was like go to school and you know we would walk the five or six blocks and we would also be allowed to go on the subway by ourselves. but we were like seven and so we got to explore the city at a very young age and one thing that we were allowed to do was go down to the elgin theater which is on eighth avenue i lived on the upper west side but we would take you know the train down and we would see all the Buster Keaton movies and Marx Brothers and Charlie Chaplin. And that was like the first wave of all I was interested in was like comedies. And I loved all those original, incredible, like particularly the Marx Brothers was our absolute favorite. And, you know, Go West and Night in Casablanca were not in distribution at that time. So those were like the holy grail. So when we later in the year, when we finally got to see those two, I mean, they're actually not among the best, but (laughs) those were the two that we were desperate to see. But um, yeah, so that was um, that really spurned the first wave of being interested in films. Um, you know, a little later, I got interested. Like my favorite movie when I was like nine or ten was a film called um, "Hello Down There" with like Tony <laughs> Randall, and uh, you know that was just it kind of defined my whole life. It was like in an underwater vehicle. Our company's called Submarine. I became a musician. You know, the idea of being in an underwater space pod playing music kind of was just, <laughs> that's all I ever wanted. Was How there, does this? Wasn't there some, there was another guest that we had who. Two. We've had two guests bring up a lowdown. over there. I'm amazed that anyone's even heard of it. I mean. I, I And only recently have they come up. I think one of them was, was Scott Alexander. I don't remember the other, but yeah. Um. Uh, crazily, and I, I had vague memories of seeing it on TV with like Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, Richard Dreyfus was in it. Yeah, <laughs> it was very TV friendly. It had like I'm forgetting all the TV. It was all TV stars except for Janet Lee was like the the main woman. But yeah, I mean that. And then it's sort of a current fave, I know. But like, what's up, Doc? Me and my brothers went to see that in the theater at least ten or twelve times. It was our absolute favorite movie. Um. But sort of in the early 70s, we moved um, up to Massachusetts, and there was actually a midnight theater up there. There was a very famous kind of jazz emporium called um, uh, uh, Music Inn, and it later became a concert hall, but they had a theater in there called Toad Hall, and they were playing the typical like repertory uh, midnight movies of the time. You know, it would be, you know, um, El Topo, it would be... um, uh, Pink Flamingos. Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble, you know, uh, Rocky Horror Show. I mean, so we basically would see all those movies, and that's what I really became obsessed with, was seeing just every midnight movie, every horror movie. It just it became the thing that – and because I – you know, my brother is a twin. We sort of like the same things, and my younger brother, Tony, as well. 
So we would just try to see, and of course, you know, they were not on TV, they were not in video, there was no video. So it was like, you'd only be able to see them if you went to the midnight shows. So that really became the obsession. Mm. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, Bambi meets Godzilla was you know the the short that would play in front of something. It was all those movies. Uh, so yeah, I mean that period sort of became an obsession for me, and that lasted through my whole life. I still love many of those, all those films. But it was also the first time you know because they would also show like Give Me Shelter and Monterey Pop, or you know later on Grey Gardens, and that's the first time that I would see. Wow. Me, documentaries that were so that was like the first move into oh those are not just what you see on pbs yeah yeah gray gardens is is amazing um i, I came late to that one but it's uh it really holds up if you see it now i just saw it about a week ago again because it was on tcm's on, on vod and it was really great to watch it there was a couple of film parties like um 10 years ago at when the hamptons film festival and they had them at that house, but it had been completely renovated. And I actually preferred it when it was run down and you yeah. know, <laughs> raccoons. Yes, I don't I don't want to see that place all cleaned up and no, it was a little, de little depressing. <laughs> Very depressing. <laughs> um so yeah, that didn't they that, wasn't there a um yes, there was, right? Didn't they do a, a theatrical feature of that with they did, yeah. I don't remember who was in it. Maybe Jessica Lang. Yeah, did you ever see that, Joe? No, I did not. I, was that made for theaters or made for television? I can't remember. It I seemed like an think, odd thing to do. It might have been like an HBO type That's thing. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that also led, I mean, the funny thing was, is one of the most pivotal movies that really created like a whole new perception of documentaries was a film, uh, the Frederick Wiseman film, Titicut Follies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that film is still like, you know, a thousand proof when you see it now, you just can't believe it. But, you know, because it was banned in the 60s um, and only educators and people who worked for the, the um, Massachusetts state government could see the film. But my mom actually was a therapist at, um, at, a, at a, a, a place called Austin Riggs, which was a certified institution. So they had a screening of Titicut Follies. And me and my brothers got to see it. And that was really one of the first real eye openers that was like, I can't. And also it was right. We saw it probably, I think, the late 70s or early 80s. And it was also right when we were really in the punk rock music and the no wave stuff. And it was such a dark vision that fit that sensibility. And it was almost like the first time I thought, I mean, how cool it was to just see a, a film that was banned and that nobody else could see. Yeah but also that it was a documentary and it just was, it was another eye-opening moment along the pathway that maybe just start thinking of documentaries differently as, you know, from the fun narrative films that I love. Right. Has that ever been, that, that finally got an official sort of above ground release, didn't it? I know I... it did get released, but it was, it was released on video, but it was shown theatrically at a certain point and then it was withdrawn again. Right. Um, and there was still like, from what I remember at the time, there were still like some arguments about showing some of the people in that state of awful uh, right. state that they were in. And um, but I think at a certain point when they realized that everyone who had been filmed was actually dead, then that's the point at which it was released. Right. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's um, I, I, yeah, I finally saw it only a few years ago after hearing about it. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's pretty grueling. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. So I remember one of the films that I saw early on in the. Um in the midnight because they would also have you know like they would show like casablanca and to have and have not you know there'd be like these sort of you know classic 30s and 40s double features and it was like i think it was all about eve and a stolen life maybe it was like two betty davis films and that was another eye-opener like all about eve is now still one of my top five movies of all time 
And I saw it a little later, more like in the 80s or early 90s, but that was sort of a game changer where I started really re-exploring all the older films. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, oops, what's that? Sorry, that was my phone. Oh, you were... Yeah, apologize. Uh, popular. What? <laughs> I don't know how to turn that off. I don't, I'm not technical enough. Uh, normally, it's Joe's phone that goes off, so... Yes. Okay. Uh, cool. So what's, what's next? So then, I mean, for me, um, I got very obsessed with horror movies for a long time. I still am, uh, you know, in the early eighties, probably late seventies, early eighties, you know, I just got like, I went to the, um, I remember it very clearly that it was around, it was May 23rd because it was the day after my birthday in 1980, friends of ours got tickets to the world premiere of the shining. And that was like another super highlight that just, you know, it just drove me deeper and deeper into everything sort of horror and supernatural. So I got, you know, I, I love Rosemary's Baby is another one of my absolute top favorite movies of all time. Um, and there was also some of those like really dark ones, like I Spit on Your Grave, that was a little hard to see, you know, and for kind of for good reason. It's one of the most upsetting films ever. Yes. It's really, even for me that loves horror stuff, that's almost too much. Uh, that was a really strong, uh, left a strong impression on me. Um, let's see. So, I mean, that, that sort of led me into, like, discovering the early indies. You know, I, I, and in a way, this was almost like, in some ways, was like the blueprint for why I responded so strongly to the graphic novel of History of Violence. So we had a we had a um a band at the time called Deep Six and you know we were working on a song called Stay Right Here that we were writing and that during that period I went to see Blood Simple and there was a there was a line in the bar where he says are you leaving he says no I'm going to stay right here in hell and um that just was the most exciting thing ever even though it had no connection or whatever but I love that movie so much and then you know, movies like that and One False Move and, you know, that sort of ilk of film speaks, mm -hmm. started to become another obsession. And that sort of led me into the, like, 90s indies and you know, Welcome to the Dollhouse and all that. And I started getting interested in maybe producing. I was working for a TV company that was, you know, I was selling foreign rights to things like Baywatch and, you know, The Rock from the Sun. And it wasn't my sensibility, but it paid the bills. And, you know, it's the whole time that I was working at the TV company, essentially, I was just paying the bills to keep the band going. But then at a certain point, it's like the reality set in that I was not, I couldn't sleep on people's living rooms anymore. I'd gotten too spoiled from the TV job and the band wasn't getting there, getting to the point of success. So band broke up and I started fixating on the idea of, of producing an indie film or be, you know, find a script or write a script or something. And that sort of led me into that world. You know, I met Christine Vashon and Ted Hope and Ted Hope early on, you know, both indie producers that I greatly respected. And we developed one project with Christine early. But that sort of led me into the Sundance world of going to Sundance and seeing movies. In the early days, I was just going for fun. And Dan, at the time, my brother was working at an ad agency and he, you know, was like a boondoggle that he could get away with. So we all went to Sundance and my close friend, Mark Pellington, you know, had his first film there. We went to visit and went, went to the premiere. And, you know, that's that was really the moment where I started kind of, you know, because at that time there was like, you know, the early docs like Paris is Burning and uh, Waco and The War Room and on the ropes and you know lots of those kinds of films that i all discovered sort of going to sundance and and that sort of led to that moment with frat house which was right at the point where it was i think 98 when we were first talking about optioning easy riders raging bulls maybe 99 and that sort of led me all to this point where you know my my taste in films of course is not really changed in that many ways i mean i still am completely i could there's probably a list of five films that if it was on TV, I would just stop everything and watch, even though I've seen them all, you know, female trouble doesn't show up on TV very much, but I would watch that. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Certainly Rosemary's baby. 
uh, Passive Glory is another one that I just absolutely love. But anyway, so that, yeah, that moment was the turning point. So when I left this company, Fremantle, I went to the TV job that I talked about producing for IFC and split screen. And then about a year later, an agent who uh, is now runs a company called 30 West named Micah Green called me up out of the blue and said, you know, we, he was working at a sales company and he said, you know, we get all these documentaries, but no one cares about them. And I saw these little documentary shorts that you produced in this, in this series on, on, uh, on IFC. And would you ever want to go back into selling? And I said, well, I'm, I'm actually not making a, a single cent on producing, you know, that it was sort of, you know, I just actually like shortly thereafter, I did sell History of Violence New Line. But right at that point, I kind of thought I have to get back into the sales. So, you know, they said, well, we've got these documentaries and we don't know what to do with them. So if you want to take them on, you know, we'll just split the fees and and that was fine with me. So that really is the turning point when I said, well, let me just embrace this. I, I need to pay the rent. And um, so that sort of started off. We It all started off with uh, the launch of three or four films um, in Toronto, September 2001. So it was not an, an auspicious start, shall we say, because... 9-11 happened and all the screenings were canceled and we were stuck in Canada for 10 days. And despite that uh, unfortunate start, you know, I still, I got, was bit by the bug and started signing films and selling them, which led to the first big hit for us, which was Spellbound in 2002. That was really the turning point. And that was the point where after the success of Spellbound, there was this wave of documentaries that I was a fan of, and some of them we were involved in, but films like uh, Winged Migration, um, Story of the Weeping Camel, and Super Size Me and Control Room were films that we took to Sundance in 2004. And um, it was the, that was the moment when I realized, like, if I really just devote myself to this genre, I, I can probably make a living and make it, I think it's like what I, my calling card, this is what I should be doing. And shortly after that, we sort of broke off with the sale. Micah Green left the, the other sales company. And um, and the head of that company and I just said, well, obviously, there's no reason for us to be working together. Like, I, I thought, why should I give you 50% since I'm doing all the work? And he had no argument. Um, so we parted ways. Um, one of the things I was just looking to see on your, and again, this not at all comprehensive list of, of stuff you've worked on. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, uh, although I just, I completely forgot you were involved with Tickled as well, which is an amazing. Oh, <laughs> one of my faves. What a an amazing, amazing documentary. What? Um, totally twisted. I, yes. Uh, and, and still going on, I guess, sort of in some. Yeah. Well, the guy died, committed suicide, but yes. still it, it had that dark, ending sort of but it wasn't exactly the ending although i'm sure if one wants to you can find a lot of tickle videos i'm sure yes do you know this uh doc joe about mm -hmm. um tickling no <laughs> it has eluded me i i can't even i can't sorry i didn't mean to throw this into the, into the midst of it <laughs> I, I, somehow it did not popped up any other things what I, what I was looking for was to see if any of the docs you've worked on have been adapted into feature films and it doesn't seem like they have um uh, and when we were talking about Great Gardens, and it kind of be, do, do, what's your? Have you ever thought about trying to turn any of these into features, or do you have a feeling about that in general? I mean, I, well, you know, I think the the answer is that you know we've actually sold the rights to adapt a number of documentaries, including Spellbound, actually going all the way back. Uh, the most recent one was Three Identical Strangers, mm. uh, where we sold the remake rights to film four and a couple of other companies together partnering. And I think what seems to be the case is that not a lot of them have actually come to fruition, but there's often a, a ton of interest. You know, obviously it's sort of like the blueprint, you know, you see a film where it's a true story and it's been, you know, edited and laid out by the filmmakers in a way that it's, it's a cogent and compelling story. And there's your blueprint for, potentially a great narrative scripted project. So yeah, there's one called The Mole Agent that we had at Sundance this year that's about um, a family that hires 
an, a fake person to enter into a nursing home to infiltrate and see if um, they're abusing the relative. And this older gentleman goes in and finds out that he's the only man and he is considered to be rather fetching by the many women in there. And it becomes this sort of hilarious, almost like a high school for 90-year-olds. And it's it's a great... And that has like multiple offers for remake adaptation. So it's 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 often the case that people buy those rights. Not so many times have they been been actually adapted. Right. I should have I should have sort of laid this in early as you can think about it. But I'm, I'm trying to think of like how many. It seems to be to me a thing that gets done with some regularity, and I can't think of too many that have exceeded the original documentaries in terms of kind of their 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 value. The um, oh no, you did well. You did Man on Wire, so that got. It did, although that already, you know, Zemeckis did that, and he already had the rights at the same time. So Philippe Petit actually gave him the rights at the time that he granted um, Simon Chin um, and James Marsh the right to do the documentary. So it was already a separate thing and being um, developed. In fact, because of that, because Zemeckis had a deal with Disney, Disney almost ended up buying Man on Wire, which was a strange twist because, you know, this was in 2008, 2009. Studios were not buying documentaries pretty much at all. But, you know, we went down the road pretty far with Disney. And then at a certain point, some senior person just sort of said, are you, I don't know, how's the, uh, is the cursing feasible here? Yes. Oh, here? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this executive literally called me up. It was like, why the fuck will we ever do this? You know, we're, we're the Walt Disney company. And he was like, forget it. And it was just like, the whole climb upwards to do that deal just terminated in one phone call. But, you know, we found amazing partners for it who did a great job releasing it in Magnolia Pictures. So it ended up working out great. Um, yeah. I just, I just love the uh, official Disney line being, why the fuck would we do this? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I anyway, know, sorry, but to get, to get back, yeah, Tickling is an amazing um, doc that just starts starts very sort of light and fluffy and trivial and gets darker and darker and more and more demented and twisted as you go. And I should not say any more about it, but um, I'm sure it's streaming somewhere and, and well worth your time. Yeah. There's, there's a film that we sold and worked on maybe two years ago called the amazing Jonathan documentary. Mm. And it's sort of in a similar category of like, you know, it starts off a little bit unsuspecting and then it gets more and more twisted and it's another one where it's best not to reveal what happens, but it's a great watch. It's on Hulu. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've worked on a lot of films over the years, you know, that sort of, that are more your traditional, you know, there's also those films that we love, you know, films about, uh, you know, um, injustice or, you know, wrongfully imprisoned people, et cetera. And some of those are, you know, they really get me fired up. You know, we, there's one called Crime and Punishment that's on Hulu right now. Another one called Who's Streets. It was about Ferguson. You know, these films are, you know, so timely right now, even more than they were almost when they came out. Sure. But yeah, any any miscarriage of justice story always gets me. Uh, interesting. Um, well, cool. Well, do you have uh, more more on your list? Or are we... Uh... Well, I mean, there are other films that I, I would, uh, I, I, am I following the format enough or I'm not sure? Sure. Yeah. The, the format. format changes with the guest. Oh, the, good, the, okay. rigid, the rigid format, yes, we'll be, uh, we'll be fining you for deviating. <laughs> <from that>. I <laughs> mean, I would say there's certain films that didn't necessarily, you know, that I knew nothing about and I sort of just stumbled upon and they became among my favorite films of all time. And I and I'm surprised when, you know, but I, I, I know that in particularly the first one, there are a lot of people that haven't seen it because it hasn't been that widely available. But it's a film called uh, Andy Warhol's Bad. Oh, yeah. I did the trailer for that. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> well, bowing down, bowing down. <laughs> just absolutely one of my favorite movies. And I just it, it was sort of in the lineage of, of you know, um, of the, 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 you know, Pink Flamingos and all those uh, great John Waters films. But it had a certain dry quality to it that just, I don't know what it is, but that's another movie. I could just watch that over and over again. And uh, 
you know, I mean, as one example, you know, uh, you know, this is giving away a pretty crucial scene, so forgive. And uh, but, you know, when one of the sort of assassins throws a baby out the window and it splatters on the sidewalk, you know, an Upper West Side mom goes by with a baby carriage and says, that's what I'm going to do to you if you don't behave. <laughs> a lot of great dialogue in that movie. Yeah. And it's, it's, <laughs> the woman says, you've got to kill a dog and you've got to do it viciously. <laughs> exactly. That's Bridget Berlin. Yeah. Or when they're in the movie theater and, you know, the two twin girls who were both like late Warhol superstars, Geraldine Smith and her sister, Maria Smith. And, you know, they're just sitting there eating popcorn, talking at the top of their lungs. And someone says, can you keep it down? They're like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> just it's so like it's so dry it's not done for humor in a way it's just one of the great movies i'm surprised that someone hasn't tried to re-release it because it really is a classic there um, uh seems to be a sort of rock bottom uh dvd of it available but um yeah it was uh it was there was a german dvd available for a long time that was always 79.99 and i didn't want to spend it but i found a <laughs> I mean, I found a VHS of it at a local flea market, and it was like the happiest day of my life. Probably the best um, way to see it, too, right? Either yeah. that or oh, yeah. 16, 16 mil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's great. And it's also the funny thing, it was shot in the neighborhood. It was shot two blocks, parts of it were shot two blocks from where I lived in New York when I was in the bands, which was on Prince and Lafayette. And the scene where, you know, she goes into the gas station and she cuts off the finger and puts it in the ketchup bottle. That's two. That was two blocks from my house, and it was in the an old. And I used to walk by that garage, but now it's long gone. Um, and another film that really I did it was not. I don't know. I guess it's, but it really affected me. I love it so much. I could still watch it. I could sit down and watch it right now. Is you know, Room at the Top. Mm. You know, the Lawrence Harvey film, Simone Fumire. Just sort of that, you know, painful like lost love that couldn't quite make it just absolutely brilliantly done such a great movie and it, it was oscar it won some oscar nominations oh and when it came out i think maybe simone Signore, maybe launch harvey even, but yeah it uh it seems to have not survive the mists of time so well but it's really one of the absolute best greatest films totally great one um i guess i can't I can't not mention Alien because Alien was another one, still one of my favorite movies, still holds up, and it's still one of those films that just at the time was so mind blowing. It just, I don't know, it just affected me. It was like it was a new turning point, it was a new moment. I did. Did you uh, you saw it when it came out? Yeah, I saw it in the theater when it came and, out, and had no idea what to expect. Pretty much, is that no idea uh, what to expect? No. Yeah, I, I, I'm so fascinated by the the generations that have come after us, who see the film. It's impossible not to. I mean, they see it with different eyes. Sigourney Weaver's a huge star now, you know, and all that. And and right. it just it really did boggle my mind at the time. I saw it, I think, opening day that, you know, the the one actor you had never seen before, who was you know the attractive young woman. Surely she's going to get killed any minute now. Right. Ends up being the survivor of the thing, and I, it, it just—I mean, the film's great without the element of surprise and so forth. But just think about all the all the surprises that movie contains that that someone coming to it today is not surprised by. Do you think that that means that people who see it today don't appreciate it as much? I think they probably like it, but I think that they may have been they may have been uh, exposed to the to the sequel before that. You know, right. which is which was uh, you know very popular, and um, and it's it's hard to recapture the moment. I mean, imagine seeing yeah. King Kong in 1933, when there really hadn't been very many movies of that type at all, and right. and and uh, you know here you had something that was setting a trend that was going to go on for a generation, uh, but this was all brand new to people. I mean, unless they happened to see The Silent Lost World, there really weren't there weren't a lot of stop motion monster movies going right. Uh, and and uh, some of the some of the the movies that did excite people at the time um, are movies that don't as, uh, are, haven't been as exciting over the years because they've been copied and imitated so many times and and then some of them have just sort of fallen off of, 
off the face of the of the landscape. You know, they they are just not as you said about Rome at the top. It's not. That was a very well known and popular movie in its day, and now it is. It's it's virtually unknown. Yeah, it's amazing to me. Um, yeah, no, it's funny. And King Kong is a great reference because that's another one of those films that you know I saw as a kid. You know, even in the late sixties, it didn't look. You know, it's. I mean, I love stop motion animation. I love the whole Harryhausen feel of you know. So that is, um, you know, one of the greats. But I, you do wonder, like, if someone sees it now. Although my nephews, when they were kids, they loved King Kong. They were absolutely, and they loved Godzilla. They were just obsessed. So I guess maybe you know, big monsters are always. Well, it also too. depends on how old you are when you see them. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, a lot, a lot of the movies that we review are movies that we saw at a tender age, and they spoke to us in ways that they might not have spoken to us if we had waited 10 more years. But as you said about with All About Eve, I mean, if it's a great movie, it's a great movie. And whether you saw it when it was new or whether you saw it after its big moment in the sun when it was rediscovered, you watch that movie today and it's just got, it's got some of the best dialogue ever written for a movie. Yeah. And, uh, and, it's, and, it's, and what are movies? They're about characters. They're about stories, about inter interactions and inter interrelations. And, and, uh, and that's, a, that's a template for how to, how to, how to make a really good character picture. Yeah, totally. It's funny now that you, when you mentioned Jim Jarmusch, I'm remembering that Jim took me and my brother, there was a retrospective of Nicholas Ray at the public theater in the early eighties, like 81 or 82. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a real eye opener. And I'm now a huge Nick Ray fan. I love his films. In fact, I just saw one that I had never seen. I was so thrilled to see it. And it was such a weird one. It was wind over the Everglades. Yeah, I had a lot of trouble with that one. That was uh, that was that was very contentious. It's all it's all stock music too. You can hear music from Superman. You know? <laughs> really, that's funny because he didn't get to finish the picture. Yeah, well, you can sort of. It doesn't feel like one of his films, but it sort of does. But you know, when I first saw you know in a lonely place or you know some of those um, and and Johnny Guitar like number one, you know that was like a kind of incredible moment. I think that's that single-handedly made me want to discover like every western i could possibly watch you know obviously that's kind of a not typical western it's a pretty no, that's kind movie. of a fever dream yeah very much not typical like, yes one, one of the great movies of all time though i love that and uh and party doll was actually one of the ones that i it was a little hard to see and that one played at that and i haven't been able to see it since i don't i remember just loving it uh, so it's, much. Uh, it's Party Girl, and it's on, Party Girl, uh, yeah. it's on TCM occasionally. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, I think I wonder. Well, I don't know this film at all. What is it? Robert Taylor. It's a gangster picture. Yeah, I think it might be. Is it Rosalind Russell? No, no, it's someone. I can't remember who, but it's definitely like a, a very uh, kind of like at least at the time, like the print we saw at the public was very garish and the colors are really rich and it kind of just felt like a real statement it was, it was a good one um and obviously rebel without a cause is a great film although i now have seen a number of his other ones and it isn't necessarily at the top of my list but i still love it i never saw king of kings i'm assuming it's probably not that great but no no it's great it's, it's as those as those things go uh yeah. you know that type of picture it's it's one of the best yeah great and was was hair the last thing he? he uh, no, he did a, he did an indie. He did, uh, he did an independent picture in New York. Um, uh, I can't remember the title of it, unfortunately. But it, it's um, it's it's very unlike, unlike his what he was usually doing. But that's because he was working with no money. And he had been teaching, and so it was a lot of uh, a lot of the film was uh, staffed with his students. Mm. Right. Yeah, and. Of course, you know, I can't, I can't not mention Rock and Roll High School. It was one of my favorites. And also sort of when we did, we, we produced a film later on called House of the Devil. And I'd always been a huge fan of, um, of Mary uh, Warnoff. Uh, Mary Warnoff, right. Right, exactly. You know, she was also in Eating Raul and you mm -hmm. know, she's a great, great actress. So we ended up hiring her to play the sort of evil lead in House of the Devil. Uh, oh, another, right. another film that that I worked on, uh, and so that was kind of a, a a wish fulfilled to work with her. She was great. No, she's great. She's she's uh, she's one of the Warhol people. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's actually a Todd Haynes Velvet Underground documentary coming out uh, sometime soonish uh, that I worked on that uh, 
heavily features Mary Warnoff, who's uh, one of the gang that's still around. Yeah, she's, she's got some. She's got some stories. Let me tell you. Yeah, yeah, totally. Did you have some good horror stories about Joe? Or was that... <laughs> I don't think I I uh, rose to that level. <laughs> yeah. you, can, you can tell me off the air. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's something you're dying to. I can see it. I can tell. There's one you want to talk about. You're not sure if you should. I, the only reason I it's true. I, I didn't mention it because it wasn't. It wasn't a theatrical film; it was a TV movie. But it absolutely—that's okay. We have we have very lax standards here. Okay, good. Yes. Well, when me and I mean, this is again another one that was in sort of right around the punk era, and in our household, this was the best movie we'd ever seen, which was Born Innocent. You know, the, <laughs> the Linda Blair movie. I we Yikes. absolutely the, loved that movie. The mop, the mop handle movie. Yes, oh. exactly. It was. It was because we were in that zone of like looking for things that were completely over the top and transgressive and and inappropriate. And here on the on your on ABC or whatever, the movie of the week, you know, Linda Blair is getting raped with a mop handle. We just could not believe what we were seeing. So it sort of fit that punk ethos at the time. So that yeah, that, movie, that movie's pretty raw, <laughs> for, yeah, especially pretty for raw. TV. Especially for TV at that time, you know. I mean, yeah. people forget that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this is pre-cable. Um, and the other one, other group of films, I guess I, I would have maybe I'll end on this, but you know, for a while there, sort of similar era, but maybe a little later, deep obsession with all of the Russ Meyer stuff, like Motorcycle, and you know, all all of those, like yeah. the early black and white ones, are so incredible. Yes. I I agree. I think his black and white period was was better. I think Mud Honey and Lorna are uh, are pretty well, pretty astonishing. Both of those films, Mud Honey is amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's I think that's his best film. Although I love Motorcycle, but they're they're all great. Uh, but it's true. Later on, it being a little different. But you know, Beneath Valley of the Dolls is still a great film. But but those those yeah, Tura Satana and those. How do I mean? How can you go wrong? You can't go wrong with Tura Satana. I agree. <laughs> God, you know, it just hit me. We've we've been doing this long enough, Joe, that my first thought was, "Oh yeah, we should do a Russ Meyer episode." And that was our I first remember, episode. That was our first episode. Is, is <laughs> really we, wow. Miguel Arteta came on and talked about his love for Russ Meyer. <laughs> Go back through our library. It's, it's, it's endless hours of fun. Many many hours. Yeah, but um, yeah, no, I'm with you, except for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which I think is just one of the greatest movies ever made. But yeah, the black and white ones are, are uh, uh, is it that they're a little more innocent? I don't know. There's something about them that. Yeah, they're gritty, they're gritty you know, and they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're more Erskine Caldwell, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I think they're, and they're obviously cheaper and everything, but, um, and, and also they're a little bit more reticent in the sense that they're older, so they're not quite as explicit as some of the pictures that he made later. Right. But the, yeah. he was always fighting against making actual porn. You know, he was trying yeah. to go, everybody was trying to go as far as they could go when the rating system came in uh, and, and the X rating collapsed. And it was like, now you could just run porn. Uh, right. And he was always having to contend with the fact that he really wasn't making porn. He was making sort of the uh, more sophisticated version of the nudie cuties that he started with. Right. Yeah, that, that, uh, it, it's true, and I'm trying to think. There was one because there's there was a Russ Meyer film festival that showed all of those. I think maybe not at the public, but somewhere downtown, and that's when I got to see a lot of them. And there was one that was just pretty much just porn, but I'm actually forgetting the title. It was after uh, Beneath the Valley of the Dolls, I think. Oh yeah, that would be sort of later on. Yeah, well, that was Beneath, the Black Snake era. Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, and right, stuff. right, that might have even been it. Yeah. It's perilously close to porn, yeah. but, but uh, not quite. Yeah, or Black Snake, which is just awful. I never saw <laughs> that. It's awful. I, it's not recommended. Um, it's funny yeah. the the um this you know as we've all been locked down the pandemic you know I, I can't go to flea markets and I love buying old shit and the first day that I noticed that my local kind of antique store was open I went in there. And the guy said, well, we're not really open, but, you know, since you're a regular, you know, just as long as you have a mask on. So I walk in there and there's a pile of movie posters. And I, I'm thinking, well, just look through and like, what do you know? There's literally a framed original Beneath the Valley of the Dolls poster, 
the original poster of Honeymoon Killers. It's like these. Oh, that's another one that's top top ten favorite film, Honeymoon Killers. I love that film. Mm -hmm. But uh, I couldn't believe it. It was like this is my reward for being you know in quarantine for thirty days. <laughs> it's like the most incredible, just all these incredible old beautiful cult films. Rock and Roll High School was another one. Oh, what were they getting for these? They were not expensive. They were like sixty bucks each. Yeah, framed. Yeah, well, the that not they weren't all framed, but um, the framed ones were seventy five, and the other ones were sixty. Did you, did you snatch a bunch of them up? I got about ten of them. Yeah, I got a uh, will. I got. <laughs> yeah, I hope you brought your truck with you. I have. I don't have anywhere near the wall space. I don't have anywhere to put them. But I, uh, it was a Willard. The problem with collecting posters is finding places to put them. Yeah, exactly. There was a, a great uh, another. There was also an early fave, the house that dripped blood, early fave horror movie. Mm. So that one, and then Willard and Rock and Roll High School, and um, Honeymoon Killers, and and um, Beast Valley of the Dolls. So it was a real wow. haul. Yeah, holy cow! Made me feel good about the pandemic all of a sudden. In some little antique store in the Jersey Shore. Yeah, it was. I love it. Could not believe it. Great, well, listen, thanks, Josh. Well, thank you for having me yes. on. On it was a it was a real pleasure. It's a memory lane. I now want to go back and watch all these movies. I'm sure that's I know, that's what the pandemic yeah. is for. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now you have the time. Yeah, very good. Uh, well, thank you again. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, man. Okay, yeah, good to see, see you guys you. soon. Hope to see you in person someday. Soon. Yes, yes, someday soon. <laughs> Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies That Made Me. Stay safe out there, folks. For over a hundred years, the world has been captivated by Hollywood. The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Where stars are born. But just beneath the stardust lie a million more fascinating stories that when sewn together form an incredible history. The Secret History of Hollywood. Available now wherever you get podcasts. Mm -hmm.